What are your thoughts regarding uh, persecution? So uh, every month I get a magazine in the mail. It's free. It's called The Voice of the Martyrs magazine. And you, you get a handful of articles about Christians who are being persecuted. Uh, Istanbul, Turkey, Russia, you name it. They, they, they give you different ones every month. And their prayers that they ask you to do are often not what you would think to pray for. Uh, we would think, Lord, end the persecution. Like just end it, wipe it out. They often do not ask for those things. They often ask for strength to endure persecution. I want to give you a story of why that is. In the 1970s, a Baptist pastor named Joseph Stahn, I think I said that right. I'm sorry if I pronounced his name wrong. It's Romanian. Uh, he was imprisoned under the communist-ruled Romanian government for preaching the gospel. He, went multi, he un, underwent multiple beatings for a long period of time. Uh, he would go through 10-hour interrogations, 10 hours just to wear him down. He'd go through like psychological warfare to kind of bother him and make him freak out and think things. And he, uh, he recalls one, one, one of his uh, interrogation session, sessions. And this is what he says. Here's, here's the story. I told the interrogator, you should know that your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. Now here's how it works, sir. You know that my sermons are on tape all over the country. And my death will only sprinkle my sermons with my blood. Everybody who has a tape of one of my sermons will pick it up and say, I had better listen again. This man died for what he preached. Sir, my sermons will speak ten times louder after you kill me and because you kill me. One of the interrogators was heard later saying, We know that Mr. Stahn would love to be a martyr, but we are not so foolish to fulfill his word. And later they released him, and he was banished from Romania. So they knew if they were to kill him that they would only not only do what he wanted, but the gospel would go actually further because he would die. And that view of suffering and hardship and difficulty is something that, in light of the gospel, I think surprises people like us, especially me. Uh, this man's given, so he's come to America, he's given multiple like sermons and lectures about his uh, sufferings. They're just they're radical. It's just amazing to hear this man talk. But this view of hardship for Westerners like us is so foreign. In America, uh, we love the First Amendment. I certainly like it. I like having the freedom of speech. I don't know if you do, but I certainly do. I like knowing that we can do this and not have someone knock on our door saying, hey, you ought not do that. And I would say that it is arguably true that little by little, however, in the world, a Christian's freedom of speech is being chiseled away. I think you probably all agree with that. But to be a Christian, you don't really have Freedom of speech, though you do, it's just very censored, right? You can't offend certain people, like during the month of June, perhaps. So though we live in a country where freedom of religion is good, I'm not welcoming persecution, so don't misunderstand. But freedom of religion is not our hope for the gospel spreading. In God's providence, the gospel actually is more prone to advance when there are tighter restrictions. So it's interesting how this works, isn't it? So we shouldn't fret when we see the dissolving of these things. Our hope, friends, is not in the freedom of religion, but in the freedom of God. God is sovereign over the world. He's a king. He cannot be stopped, no matter the government, no matter the ruler or the rule, right? In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, Paul says that he's bound with chains. He says that he's bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. That's Paul's hope, right? As though I'm in chains, the word of God's not enchained. 
Therefore, brothers, let me encourage you to partner with the Lord while it is easier now. So there is no persecution now for being a Christian, but one day that will not be the case. When hardship increases, though, we can rest that God's purposes will still go forth. So when you pray about the gospel spreading, do you see the gospel slowing down because of difficulty? For instance, could it be that in God's providence, the darker the world gets, the brighter the gospel can shine? Do you believe that? That's how how the Bible tells us to think. Is it possible then that the lack of persecution and hardship in America has actually slowed the spread of the gospel? I once heard a pastor say the problem with pastors nowadays is that they don't get persecuted anymore. And I think that's also very true. A lack of boldness because, well, there's nothing like, well, it's so easy. We can just kind of coast, right? The gospel spreads because God puts the gospel first, regardless of the persecution. And here in Philippians chapter 1, Paul's going to show us what that looks like to put the gospel first as a means of maintaining his joy. I almost titled this sermon, Maintaining Joy in Ministry, so you can see how I think about the gospel in Christian ministry. But also, you are ministers as a Christian, so it kind of works for you as well. How to maintain joy in the Christian life, those are all kind of certain things. But I want you to see three ways that Paul tells us to put the gospel first. And this passage for me is particularly uh, convicting and remarkably encouraging. Uh, I've been talking to Kelly about it pretty much all week, so she's already heard this this sermon three times probably. Uh, But it is extremely encouraging. So let me help you to see what I see by by the Lord's grace. Uh, Verse 12. So first... God's purpose is being accomplished. That's verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So Paul speaks of what has happened. Well, what has happened to Paul? Remember, Paul is in a hotel. No, Paul's in jail, right? He's talking about what has happened to him. If you remember the book of Acts in chapter 16, when the church in Philippi was started, there was a riot. They were beaten. They were thrown in jail. And they're released. And now Paul's in jail for, for well, he's a no, but it'll be for two years that he'll be in jail. All he's experienced has expedited the gospel. The gospel's gone further because of all this pain and suffering. So let me put it for you very simply. According to the Bible, suffering doesn't slow the gospel. It spreads the gospel. Like that story that we heard of that Baptist man who was under Romanian persecution. Paul recognizes that God's sovereign providence in the matter, look at verse 18. It's kind of a parallel verse here. Sorry, verse 17. That he is put, I'm sorry, yes, it's somewhere in there. Verse 16, that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Paul is saying, God put me here. I'm not here by accident. I've been placed here on purpose in jail, right? God himself put Paul in prison. So Paul can rejoice because in prison, God's purposes are being fulfilled, right? He understands God's sovereignty, meaning that God is the king. God is free. He can do whatever he wants, right? He's not stopped. And God's province, how God works in the world through the world, right? Over his life. You see, faith that traces God's hand will bring joy in the prison cell. He sees God's hand at work even when he's in jail. If you remember the story of Joseph, after Joseph ascends to being the right hand of Pharaoh, what does he say about who got him to where he is? Well, Genesis chapter 45, verse 5. This, is, this verse occurs a handful of times that Joseph's telling his brothers who betrayed him, who lied, who sold him. He says, 
God sent me here. God took me here. God, no, but your brothers did it. Right, but God did it. That's God's providence, right? That's what Paul is saying. I want you to take special note of a word here that your Bible probably has either the word uh, advanced or maybe the gospel was furthered or progressed in verse 12. This word in the original language is so paradoxical. Let me tell you what it means. It refers to cutting forward. So if you, if you, have, if you, so I don't know if you guys ever go hiking out in, the, in high brush, but what should you bring to go through a trail with, with brush? Like a machete, right? You'd hack, you could hack a brush down and walk through it. Well, this word that Paul uses for advancing refers to bushwhacking through, through a dense, like a dense brush or a military advancing through a, a barrier. So listen to what Paul is saying. Jail is not a barrier to the gospel. What is he saying? It's actually destroying barriers. Isn't that amazing? That what we think would slow it down, Paul's saying, actually, it's propelling because of jail. God's sovereignty and providence over evil men, the government, even Satan, is seen that despite their working against God, this actually serves God's purpose. And you guys know this. In the book of Acts, chapter 1, Verse 8, you probably know this familiar, famous verse that Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes, you will have what? You'll have power, right? And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. But if you read the book of Acts, the disciples don't really obey that very well. In chapters 2 through 6, do you know how far they go? They go to Jerusalem. They don't leave. But Jesus said to go further. So what happens between chapter 6 and chapter 9? Do you recall? Well, Stephen is killed, right? Stephen is raised up. He's stoned. And then in verse 8, it says the disciples scattered. So your MVP just got killed. And what do they do? They finally get out, right? Do you see that? What you think would slow the gospel down just got it out. That's what God seems to be doing. There's a Christian from the second century that said this, a famous quote, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So friends, God is so dedicated to his glory being known and prized that God will advance the gospel no matter the opposition. He actually uses opposition to make it go further and faster. And so Paul has joy because he rested in God's purposes and providence in his life. You see, Paul's joy was God's joy. His will was to see God's will. So though providence orders things for your disappointments, Paul is saying these are actually God's divine appointments. Do you see the difference? So let me ask you a question. Is your joy bound to God's purposes or bound to your own? Are you seeking the expansion of your kingdom or God's kingdom? And the way that we know that is very simple. When things don't go my way, what do I want to do? How do you react? See, God's purpose of grace is not to advance our little kingdoms, but to actually crush them under his own. That's what he's in the habit of doing. Every day, every morning when we wake up, I operate by default under my own kingdom. My rule, my way, my morning, my this, my that. It's my breakfast, my time to wake up, leave me alone, drive faster, get out of my way, don't talk. Like, it's my kingdom. This is my little, this is how I rule, right? We do that by default. That's what sin is. Default living for our little kings. And we're easily frustrated when things don't go our way. So we're prone to disbelief, sorrow, frustration, 
when we should be dedicated to seeking God's kingdom advance, our joy will always increase. So every day, God will employ things in your life. For Paul, it was jail. For you, it might be long traffic. It might be a difficult family. It might be a hard morning. To reveal the folly of your kingdom, your will, and your way, in so doing, he will dethrone you and enthrone himself. God is in the habit of dethroning your kingdom to make his kingdom be true. God's purposes must be our purposes. Look at verse 13 through 14. This is the second point. God's gospel is being spread. So first Paul sees God's purposes are being accomplished. Now God's gospel is being spread. There's two ways that is spread. Look at verse 13. The first way, among unbelievers. So it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So a lot of commentators are not really sure who is this imperial guard. Like We don't really know who they are. It's, we, I mean, we know it's Roman, like, uh, warriors and jailers, but who are these people? What it seems to be the what many, many people think is it's a an elite group of about ten thousand hand picked guards. So you can work for Rome, but if you're one of these guys, I mean, you are you are in like you are a big deal. You you usher the governmental authority in Rome. You you operate over citizens. I mean, you're you're a big deal. You're you're a Roman hand picked guard. And while Paul willed to be a preacher, God willed for Paul to be a prisoner. A prisoner for Christ. So let me ask you, why do you think God did that? We don't know the answer, but Paul's telling us the answer right here. How would you reach a group of hardened, rough, evil Roman soldiers with the gospel? What would you do? Would Paul expect them to come to the synagogue when he goes there? I'll see you guys there. Would they come to the Philippian church? You know, let's go see what those people that we can't stand are doing. No, they wouldn't do that. Instead, God sends Paul to prison. That's how you're gonna reach him. I'm gonna send you to prison, right? This is, this is what the Lord Jesus told us that he does as well. Look at Luke chapter 19, verse 10. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. So our Lord did not wait for us to go to him Instead, he goes to us. That's why he sent Paul to jail. This imperial guard then knows that he is there for Christ. Thus, as the guards, if you think of what happens, so when Paul's in jail, if you read Acts chapter 28, uh, what we seem to think is Paul is uh, bound between two Roman guards, those poor guards. They're hearing nothing but gospel preaching long time, eight hours a day, long shifts, nothing but Paul talking about the gospel. And what they do is they rotate guards. So as Paul's there for two years, he's probably getting different guards every single day. And he's preaching the gospel to them every single day. So thus, Paul has literally a captive paid audience. It's pretty easy evangelism, isn't it? They're paid to sit in front of you and talk to you, right? Stay here. They're captive. They can't leave you. They're, they're part of their job. Kelly and I have a friend of ours that we knew from Indiana. He's still there. Uh, he was a missionary in North Korea. He said, no, North Korea, Christians just disappear, you found, I mean, you just, you die or disappear. You go to a concentration camp and you die there. They don't know where you go, you just die. Well, he was caught and he was interrogated and he was, in God's province, he was sent back to America. They banned him from the country for good. He can't go there ever again. And he has multiple pastors there that he was discipling that he raised up. One of his pastor friends was also caught and captured by the North Korean security in the jail. And he had only some note cards for his sermon that he was preparing and the guards asked him, well, you know, what are you doing? Who are you? And they confiscated uh, his note cards. 
One of the guards reads the note cards. Can you guess where the story is going? He reads note cards of a, of a guy's sermon. He gets converted reading this guy's note cards. And now, this is a couple years ago, but our friend in Indiana would then have FaceTime calls with a North Korean just converted guard about the gospel. How would that guard ever hear the gospel? Not by going to church because he's told to hate Christians, right? So how does God get him? I'll send him to you, right? That's how God works. Paul's view of the gospel then is so high that when he's surrounded by unbelievers, he sees them as all spiritually dead. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says that everyone is dead in their sins. So when Paul sees them, he's not irritated by them. He's not annoyed. He's not thinking, oh good, there's more guards. He says, oh good, the mission field, right? Paul's excited. He sees them as dead men who are lost, condemned, unbelievers, hell bound. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I want you to read with me a well-known section that you likely know Probably by, maybe even by heart, if I read it, you probably think, oh, I know where this is going. But I want you to see how the gospel impacts how you think about unbelievers and how it should make you think more about what Paul is thinking here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 through 17. So it's, we all know verse 17. I think you'll know that, but before that, you'll see why Paul says this. Starting with verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, so therefore, so what's this therefore? Because that, just like we just read. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So look what Paul just did. As new creations in Christ, we have a new ruler. We, we operate according to the love of Christ, right? Love of Christ controls us, right? We have a new motive. We no longer live for ourselves, Paul says, but for him. And now we have a new reality. Verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. That means when you look at people that you see at Walmart in the parking lot that just took your parking spot, when you see people in the checkout line, when you see people that are bringing your food at a restaurant, they're not just people anymore. That's an unbeliever that's going to go to hell. That guy's lost. That waiter is lost. They, they probably do not know Christ. So brothers, who will get the waiters to hear the gospel? Who will get the doctors and nurses to hear the gospel? Well, do you go to the doctor? Do you have an appointment with the doctor this week? Who will get the coaches to hear the gospel? Do your grandkids have sports? How else would they hear it? Do you see what Paul is saying? Paul, God has sent you as minister of the gospel to the unbelievers in your life. C.S. Lewis said this, this quote. stuck with me for years. C.S. Lewis said, There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. So let me give you an encouraging insight that you've all done because I do it. <laughs> so confession time. Uh, have you ever prayed, Lord, would you give me someone to share the gospel with this coming week? You ever prayed that prayer? I'm sure you probably have. And then what happens? Do you guys do it? No? Why not? Because foolishly, I think some guy named... Martin or something will 
Actually, he'll have a Christian name. It'll be Noah. Noah will come to me and go, hey, Kel, can you tell me how to get saved? Sure. Not going to happen, is it? The people you're around are the answer to that prayer. People you see every day, that's you're supposed to go to. People at the store. We surely hope they'll approach us, but Paul says, well, God sent me to prison because they ain't going to come to me. Do you understand that? Don't see them as merely fleshly people. See them as souls that will last forever. That's the first way it's being spread among unbelievers. The second way Paul says being spread among believers. Look at verse 14. It's being spread among believers. So the gospel goes forth and unbelievers are here in the gospel, which is good news. Paul's excited. But he's also telling us that the brothers here, the Christians, are also hearing the same word and being encouraged. When Paul's in prison, the people of God increased in courage and in bulls. They actually got more bull because it happened to Paul. They didn't back up and say, whoa, whoa, if he's getting in trouble, we better, we better slow down. No, no, no. They say, actually, I want to go too. I want to be more bull because of Paul. Just like how the Israelites multiplied under Pharaoh's hard reign, so too Christian courage multiplies under hardship. That's what it's meant to do. Rather than making believers fearful, Paul's imprisonment made them fear less. In the book of Acts chapter 4, when John and Peter are imprisoned, they're imprisoned overnight and they're released. The next day, they are warned, don't speak anymore in the gospel. And they go, uh, okay, whatever, Pff, we're going to, right? And they come back to the disciples and the disciples all together, they pray for boldness. And then the next verse says, and they were bold. So they prayed for it because when Peter and John came back, they were encouraged to speak the word more boldly. In Luke chapter 21, Jesus says something that, again, some of these verses that Jesus, some of the things that Jesus says, we just take for granted. Read Jesus' words slow. They should stun you. In Luke chapter 21, verse 12 and 13, Jesus talking about when the, when the world gets worse, which we think, how is that possible? Well, it really is possible. And this is what it says, Luke 21, starting in verse 12 and 13, before all, all these things happen. But before all this, they, world, government, evil people, unbelievers, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Well, that's not good. That sound good? No. But look what Jesus says. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. How does the gospel get to Caesar? They're going to arrest you, and then I'll get it to him. You see that? How does it get to the jailers? They're going to attack you. So these believers are being emboldened because of this. Moses asked, or Moses had the same encounter with the Lord in Exodus chapter 4, verse 12. The Lord tells him, now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Friends, you see that evangelism inspires evangelists. This is what happened to the missionary martyr, uh, Jim Elliott, whom many of you probably have known. I think I've referenced him multiple times. He was martyred. Him and his four friends were speared to death by the Aka Indians in 1956. After that happened, so he graduated from Wheaton College in Illinois. After that, years later, many students who would graduate from Wheaton would offer themselves as missionaries in the following places. Like, we're going there and other places. It's hard, so we're going to go. So instead of backing away, they actually went further because of Jim Elliott and his comrades that died for Christ. See, Paul's gospel first mindset reminds him and his fellow brothers that they're being strengthened in faith to speak the word, Paul says, without fear. What a blessing that would be, wouldn't it? 
Don't you want that prayer request answered? I sure do. Lord, help me to speak the gospel without fear. I am so scared of people. I mean, you give me a guy to attack who's attacking my children, I'll beat him up. If you give me a 10-year-old boy to share the gospel with, I might freak out and run. I mean, aren't you guys like that too? We'll defend anything, but when it comes to sharing the gospel, we're just petrified. We need boldness. So that should be on your prayer list. The zeal of one torch of one brother ignites the other. So let me ask you and encourage you to do so. Who among you will venture into evangelism this week? And if you do so, what you should do is you should tell somebody here because they'll say, hey, I can do that. How that, really, that went that way? I could, I could do that. It'll spark it, right? So be mindful of the gospel when you see unbelievers. Be mindful that hardships are actually means of encouraging and equipping other people to do the gospel, the gospel work. When we spread the gospel as our priority, we will make it our primary desire in life. Thirdly and lastly, God's son is being proclaimed. So God's purpose being accomplished. God's gospel is being spread. Paul's third point is very, very true. God's son is being proclaimed. This is verses 15 through 18. And there are two kinds of preaching that is going on because of Paul's imprisonment. The first kind, Paul has some critics. Look at verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. And then in verse 17, he explains who they are. The former, those who are from envy and rivalry, rivalry, proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So who are these people? Well, look what Paul talked about. Verse 14, he said, most of the brothers. And then verse 17, some. Who is the some? Friends, these are, these are Christians doing this. These are Christians acting unchristian. And they're preaching, they're actually preaching Christ. They're not preaching heresy. They're not preaching a false, they're preaching the true gospel with a selfish motive against Paul. So Paul's being attacked by his own team. And they're preaching, again, it's not heretical, but it's to afflict Paul. It's self-promotion in preaching. It's mixed with, it says, envy and rivalry and selfish ambition. If you notice, those are all kind of just cousins of the same sin. Self, right? They're all related. They're all me-centered. Envy desires things to take that I don't have. Rivalry says, sees competition with anger. And selfish ambition says, I want to promote myself. Right? You're ambitious about yourself. That's what it means. So when the gospel and God's son are not first in our hearts, we will inevitably and happily fulfill that passion with self. Now, let me just give you something very personal. I am very prone as a pastor to feel like that. It's very prone for ministers to feel, man, I just feel like, why can't I have this? I wish we had more of that. Or, man, I just, I hope when I preach, people think he's a great preacher. I have that idol. Praise. There's times where, Lord, help me not to preach with selfish ambition. So this week, if you want to pray for me to put that to death, that would be a good prayer to pray until I drop, honestly. That I would preach Christ with unmixed motives. Pastors need your prayers. I encourage you to do so. But these brothers rivaled with Paul. Not because of Paul, right? Ah, we don't like Paul. It's because their sin, right? Their sin is making them do this. This stems from their own heart. James chapter 4, verse 1 says this. What causes quarrels and fights among you? 
Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So this is the great danger of the Christian life and the Christian ministry, that in doing so, we bring ourselves with us, don't we? We are our worst enemy. So let me ask you guys a question. What is the cure to seeking yourself? Let me me flesh that out more. Because none of us would say that we seek ourselves. I don't think we'd openly admit that. But we do that by desiring to be seen, to be known, to be listened to. We get envious. We have rivalry. We want self-glory. I want to be seen. Look and listen to me. Hear me. Recognize me. Defend me. Right? That's, a, that's, what, that's a, a sign that we love our, ourself. Right? Exhibit A. I do that too. This is a glory problem. So when we talk about God's glory being known, what do we mean? We mean we want God's name to be heard, right? We want God to be honored. We want people to think, wow, God is really good. Wow, he's really great. That's what glory is. It's his fame, his reputation, right? And what we do is we are prone to self-glory. That makes me defensive. I will always defend myself. I want to look good. I want to look bad, right? Or I'll care too much what people think. Man, I hope they thought that was okay. Or I'll care too little. Who cares what they think? I know who I am, right? Or I'll be controlling. It's got to be my way. I know what's best. Just let me handle it, right? That's self-love, self-glory that I and we all wrestle with. But by the cross of Christ, we can be freed from this. This is what Paul was freed from. Because at the cross, isn't that just a standing testimony to the fact that you're not glorious? I mean, if you're a Christian, what are you admitting? I'm really sinful, Right? Are we admitting that by default? It's so bad, God had to die. That's how bad I am. That's how glorious I am. (laughs) God had to die for me, right? The Bible just shows us that you fall short of God's glory. You're not even close, right? Your glory evaporates at the foot of the cross. Romans 3.20 says that through the law comes knowledge of sin, meaning God's commandments show us how sinful and flawed we are, so the Bible would say, just look into the mirror. If you think you're great, look at the Ten Commandments. You're not great. I'm not all that in a bag of chips, guys. I'm just not. I know for a fact that I'm not. Because of sin. So all our attempts, all of our works to be seen as lofty and glorious will only serve to show the fact that we aren't. So what then is the cure? What's well, simple. You need to be captivated by a greater glory. Do you understand that? You need to see something that's better. And what's better than yourself? Christ. God. That's better. Jesus became a person. He forsook his own glory, right? He left it, became a man, humbled himself. He didn't seek his own. He sought his father's glory. He laid down his and took upon flesh. So on the cross, Jesus would be crucified for all the sins that plague us, all our attempts to be seen and be prideful, all of our envy and rivalry and strife. And Christ suffered for those attempts. And in the resurrection, we see the glory and power of a risen Christ. For he who knew no sin became sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is what's stunning. The glory of God, right? God's righteousness. That's beautiful. And by faith, that's credited to you. You don't have to worry about promoting yourself anymore. You can promote Christ because he's glorious. We're not. But God credits Christ's work to us. So let me help you understand this. The cure to self-glory is this. 
being captivated and awed by the greater glory of Christ. That's why Paul wasn't bothered. Well, Paul, they're slandering you. Good. <laughs> I'm pretty sinful. What do you say? Christ is proclaimed. So I don't care, right? Christ, verse, eight, verse 18, Christ is proclaimed, so I rejoice. So seek God and his righteousness first, Matthew chapter 6. What is the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be whose name? Your name. Hallowed means let it be known, let it be glorified, right? May Christ's name be made excellent and promoted and honored and loved and treasured and adored at the expense of mine. That's what Paul is saying. So the most freed preachers are those who can delight in God's glory being enjoyed. Paul saying they're not doing that. They're trying to diminish mine by exalting theirs and they're failing. But Christ is being proclaimed, so he rejoices. Second kind of preacher. This is much, much more brief. Paul's supporters. You have Paul's critics. These are Paul's supporters. Look at verse 15 again. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Then he continues on. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. So Paul's saying, I do have some brothers who are preaching Christ faithfully. And they know because I'm here for Christ, so they're not trying to rip me. They're actually, actually, we love Paul. That's why we're out here preaching for. They're knowing again that Paul has been put there. They know, again, this is God's sovereignty, God's providence, that God put Paul in prison. So when you wonder, how did Paul get to prison? God did it. Why? Who knows the mind of the Lord to be his instructor, to be his counselor? Who can teach him? I don't have any power to teach God, but he did that. So we should bow in reverence, right? Acts chapter 9, when Jesus appeared to Paul, he said this. But the Lord said to him, go, for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings in the children of Israel. So Paul was God's instrument to carry Christ's name, not his own. And these brothers knew that. Well, Paul's carrying Christ's name, so will we. So they didn't preach with selfish ambition or rivalry. They preached faithfully. And so Paul is hoping, Paul's not hoping to get sympathy cards. He's not hoping that people would feel bad for him. He's saying Christ is proclaimed, and that is good. So he rejoices in. George Whitfield, one of the well-known preachers of the Great Awakening, said this, Let the name of Whitfield perish, but Christ be glorified. Let my name die everywhere. Let even my friends forget me, if by that means the cause of the blessed Jesus may be promoted. So is Christ's name your desire? Do you desire Christ's reputation more than your own? That's what the Apostle Paul was doing. He desired Christ more than his own. And friends, this is the testing of our faith, isn't it? When push comes to shove, there's a time I got to either insert Christ's authority or mine. Who am I going to insert? What if it makes me look bad? What's Paul saying? Who cares? I should look bad. Christ is really good, right? Many of you this week may have decisions that will cause you to have to put your name, your honor, your desire, your will on display. And it may have to suffer to choose Christ instead. What will you choose? Paul had one name he wanted to promote, and it wasn't his. Verse 18, that Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Acts chapter 20, verse 24, Paul says this, I do not count, but I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. 
if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So I hope you've seen that God is very God-centered. God loves his glory, his gospel, and his son being seen. I want to leave you with one verse and one charge. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Yes, 1 Corinthians, we can't get away from it. Verse 1 says this. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So therefore, as God puts himself and his glory and his gospel first, let us imitate him. And let us imitate Paul by doing it. So this week, think of God's purpose, purposes advancing rather than your own kingdom. At work, at home, in relationships, driving, whatever it may be. Remember the priority of the gospel spreading. This week, talk to someone about Christ and tell us that we'd be encouraged to do the same. And lastly, seek the glory of Christ this week. Whatever decisions you have to make that are difficult, that may be that may lessen your reputation, your honor, your name, but will increase Christ, do it with joy. Let's pray.